You're tuned into WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, and welcome to a brand new program here on WFMU. This is called Radio Free Culture. It's a monthly series that's going to take place the last Monday of every month here in the Too Much Information slot. Benjamin Walker has not disappeared. He shall return next week, but he's giving up the last Monday of every month from 6 to 7 p.m., for Radio Free Culture, where, we, where we'll be focusing on digital culture and discussing issues like net neutrality and the broadcast spectrum and piracy, digital rights, uh, archives, libraries in the Internet age. But at the end of the day, it will all be with WFMU's own particular digital viewpoint. We here at WFMU do have a vested interest in the Internet, having more than twice as many Internet listeners as we have FM listeners and we strongly believe in uh, the Internet being a place where innovation can happen. We created the Free Music Archive a couple of years ago. And in fact, what we're hearing in the background to kick off the show is a track from the Free Music Archive by the band Yacht. This is called Shangri-La. And you can download it legally off the Free Music Archive and also off archive.org. We want to continue to innovate online and make internet broadcasting and social media as exciting as radio has always been. So various WFMU personalities are going to be hosting Radio Free Culture the last Monday of every month, and I'm here doing the first one. And uh, I'm very, very excited to have with me as as our first guest, uh, Brewster Kale, who is the founder and digital librarian of the Internet Archive. Brewster, welcome. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. So um, let's start off by introducing the, the thing that you do, which is, for lack of a better way, trying to get a copy of just about every piece of information in the world. Is that right? Yeah. The idea is to try to build the Library of Alexandria version 2. Can you build a, basically a world where if anybody's curious enough can have access to the, well, books, music, video anything that's ever been produced anywhere, anytime. And I think that's one of the promises of the Internet, and the Internet Archive is trying to play a role in that. And have you surpassed the Library of Alexandria in terms of how much information it had? <laughs> well, they, they say that I, they had 300,000 scrolls back in 300 B.C., but it was about 75% of all of the books ever written, whether it was in Egyptian uh, or Greek or the Hebrews or the Hittites, whatever. Um, and I wouldn't say we have 75%, so I think we're still being aced out by, uh, by the Library of Alexandria in the ancient days. But we do have a, uh, something going for us, is we can actually get these materials Two people, no matter where they are, so they don't. You don't have to go and be friends with the Ptolemies to uh, to be able to have access to uh, the collections either in the Internet Archive or the uh, or the Internet in general. But man, it's been sort of quirky in terms of all the rights issues. The technology issues have actually been working out pretty well. How much information is on the Internet Archive? Uh, the Internet Archive, uh, let's see, has got about eight petabytes of data now. It goes mega, giga, tera, peta. Um, so we're at about eight petabytes. We get about two million users a day, uh, different people that are using the collections. So it's encouraging that people actually want old stuff. Uh, we've got about a half million people using the Wayback Machine, which is a collection of, trying to be a collection of all websites. Um, so all websites and all pages on all websites. We've yeah, been the, collecting the, that since 1996. The Wayback Machine is a big source of embarrassment for me here at WFMU because uh, you have uh, not our earliest web pages, but you have pages from our website from 1996, <laughs> which uh, are, are downright embarrassing. Yeah, um, well, just take take a look at MIT's if you ever want to feel better about yourself. Um, in, in general, things looked a little hokey back then. It's nice to be able to see the evolution of the web, uh, but it's also nice to be able to hold some people accountable. Um, you know, go back and see their either their privacy policies or whatever their offers were, and be able to go and say, "Hey, wait a minute, you said this." And uh, we find that often people try to go back to the uh, their website and just sort of wipe things off and think that it's gone. But the idea of, of holding organizations accountable um, and having out-of-print web pages. The average life of a web page is about 100 days before it's either changed or it, uh, or it disappears. 
And uh, does the Internet Archive actually spider the entire Internet? Like every night, are you out there copying every page on online? Yep, it's a continuous process. So it takes about two months to just sort of do a sweep, if you will. Um, and we've been doing that since 96. Alexa Internet uh, also contributes its collections uh, to the Internet Archive. Um, and it's it's kind of an impossible task because the, the Internet's, well, effectively infinite. If you sort of think of the chess-playing uh, websites, you know, you, you can't get every potential computer-generated page, but we're trying towards getting what it is people um, did or, you know, whether it... And, Sometimes we're better at some areas than others, but uh, we're collecting billions of web pages. We now have 150 billion uh, web pages from over 100 million, couple hundred million websites. Wow. And I just wanted to mention to our listeners that uh, they can call in with questions at area code 201-209-9368. We're talking to Brewster Kale, founder and digital librarian of archive.org, also known as the Internet Archive. And you can also make text comments or questions on our playlist page at WFMU.org. Just follow to where it says playlist and comments. And Brewster, when, when a new service comes out on the Internet like Twitter, do you sit down and start strategizing how you're going to copy every single tweet that goes out? Yeah, we've tried. Um, but we, we've actually sort of that's not the most proud days in our lives. We, we've missed, actually. Um, uh, we don't get most of Twitter. We get uh, the popular things of Twitter. And it's actually how we learn of the YouTube videos that we, that we want to go and, and, and archive, is we just watch Twitter for all YouTube links and then uh, go and, and archive those. Um, but, for instance, we missed Napster just completely. Maybe one of the best music libraries ever built, which was burned by a stroke of a pen of a judge, um, and we weren't on the ball. So there are whole services that we've, uh, we've missed. Um, but we've, we've been trying to do what, do what we can. We've been working pretty hard to keep up with the web. Um, and now some software. There's um, books we're very active in. We've been archiving television for about 10 years. So uh, this, is a, this may come off as a, a, a naive question, but when I was telling my wife about what I was going to be talking with you about tonight, she had um, uh, a naive but kind of profound question, which is, why are you doing this? Why are you trying to archive the entire world and the entire Internet? Uh, it's really based on a sort of analogy, if you will, that it seemed to work in other times that the idea of having access to the collective works of humankind has been uh, a win. So uh, the, the original look of all libraries is, is we all look back to the Library of Alexandria. And by going and pulling together the works from all over the world and translating them then into ancient Greek... Um, they were able to come up with fantastic discoveries. They knew how big the world was. They knew it was round. They knew how big it was within a couple percent. Um, they authored, Euclid authored uh, elements, which is what it is I still studied as geometry in high school. Um, so fantastic things can come of it if you can leverage the works of other people. And the reason why I got involved in the whole area of building the library back in 1980 was just kind of on that analogy and they thought that if we're going to be this technology allows us to do this and it seems like a good thing to do but there's another step that's kind of kind of amazing is it's all intermingled now with computers so there are now computers and sort of the, the world's literature um, and and everything else kind of all jumbled up together and I, th I, I went to school and technical school and studied artificial intelligence. And the idea of of, uh, of an artificial intelligence is uh, it's quite doable. It may not be quite as separate as the way we imagined it then, where there'll be these separate Borgs over there, and we'll have to go and fight with them. But it's now much more intertwingled. I think of Google as sort of an interesting organization. It's mostly machines. It's machines with content. And so we now have this combination, which is much more popular and po uh, much more powerful than just having books on shelves. So that 
idea was in the air, sort of in the 1980s. And I said, hey, I don't know, let's go build that. And uh, so far, so good. And you actually began building the Internet Archive in the 80s? Well, building a lot of the earlier technologies. First, we needed computers that could help search things. So, because computers then were, were pretty terrible. Um, so I helped build supercomputers, and we made them so they can search materials, and then made it so you could remotely connect to them. That was the early 90s. Um, then the World Wide Web came up later. So I, I helped by building the, the first Internet publishing system and early search, probably the first Internet search engine. So anyway, um, once we can get the publishing going online, which was sort of by 94, 95, um, then we could turn to build the library. So that's when we started the archive in, in 96. And it seems to me that having a gigantic library like the Internet Archive is uh, a form of artificial intelligence. And Alan Turing, the great mathematician and, uh, and theorist, just uh, celebrated his 100th birthday, and he postulated that artificial intelligence will be achieved when a human being can converse with a computer and not know that he or she is conversing with a computer. That's, I guess, the idea of the Turing test. Do you accept that as the only definition of artificial intelligence? I think it's an, it's an interesting test. It's sort of like that, you know, can, can computers beat, beat us at chess and now check? Um, the, uh, going and defeating uh, the top human at Jeopardy, I thought, was a stunning achievement. Um, but I guess I'm not quite looking for the cyborgs, you know, walking around and looking sexy. I just like them to be kind of interesting and useful to be around. And I'd say we're already there. Um, I certainly look at my kids and they're plugged into screens and interacting with other computer people and other computers and having it be a, a pretty uh, smooth interface that makes it sort of it's hard to tell a lot of the time exactly why is it you're, you're attracted is it the person on the other side yes is it the technology yes is it the built-up knowledge that's built into these systems yes um we're building a kind of a cyborg human mush okay we have the first question uh from somebody listening uh on our comments board the glowing one wants to know what are the strategies for the internet archive on data rot and data migration Ah, good questions. Um, so how, how do you deal with If you can actually collect this stuff, then what do you do with it? And how do you keep it, keep it going? I think the, the, there's a, a few different areas. There's just trying to keep the, the material such that the bits that you have today you'll have tomorrow. And that's by basically making copies. We have to move it on to new media every three to five years. And so we've been doing that um, for the last couple decades. Um, so that that actually is kind of doable as long as you've got con continuity in your organizational structures. Um, so that's one way. Then there's trying to get it so that it's uh, accessible. So how do you go and deal with old formats? And you have to just keep moving it forward. Um, so, But the thing that I've really found out of this is... You, you really need a lot of copies. You need multiple copies. If the Library of Alexandria had gone and made a copy and put it into India or China, uh, we'd have the other works of Aristotle, the other plays of Euripides, which we don't. Um, and it was because they only had one copy and kind of the idea of universal knowledge kind of faded from, from being popular um, as the Dark Ages set in. So the... Uh, we have now made partial copies and put them in the new library of Alexandria in Egypt, which, by the way, is one of the most beautiful places to visit ever. Um, so highly recommended. And also in Amsterdam. And so we now have partial copies in a couple different places. If there are five or six places with active organizations going in and keeping them going, and also there are large-scale swap agreements, then I could feel safe. Um, we're, we're also trying out, uh, we're starting out some experiments with BitTorrent to sort of see can it help not only in access but in preservation so we can get more of a, uh, a distributed infrastructure that doesn't depend on, on large organizations. The, what happens to libraries over time is they're burned, um, and they're generally burned by governments. Just historically, that's not a political statement, it's just historically true. So let's design for it. Let's go and make sure there are copies in different regions that are on different political 
uh, rampages at, at different times. And uh, I think that we have an opportunity to, uh, to at least build things that will last for, for centuries. We're talking to Brewster Kale, founder and digital librarian of the Internet Archive, archive.org, here on Radio Free Culture, a new monthly show here on WFMU that will take place the last Monday of every month. Now, Brewster, you've been there on the Internet since uh, long before there even was a World Wide Web. Can you talk about how the original intentions and the original designs of the Internet have been changed? And I would think for the most part for the, for the worse. <laughs> Well, uh, so th- I got involved in it from the university angle, um, and th- from that perspective, we saw it as a government program. Uh, so ARPANET, uh, going to the uh, internet, um, was sort of military-oriented, um, sort of research and educational networks. Um, and then it had an interesting merging, at least for me. Um, so I-, I helped build a bunch of that sorts of things in the 1980s um, and the late 1980s. Then I met up with the guys that came at it from the modem perspective, much more human-oriented, that they were uh, Mark Graham, who started PeaceNet, Mitra, who started GreenNet in England. Um, And these were people that were trying to hook people together to be able to get political things done. It was very different angle um, from how the university side was going on and they developed these whole systems of communities and how to communicate Um, and so there was a merging of those worlds sort of in the oh 1990 or you know first few years of the 1990s the world wide web helped things a great deal just to make it so you could point and click and move around so you didn't have to have the expensive technologies or the clunky technologies that came before that Um, then there was that wild communi- uh, commercialization um, thing that happened in the late 90s. And we all, I, in, it was 1992, I was in a meeting at Stanford University and I held up my hand and I was like, I'm here to help people make money by being on the internet. And I was like, oh, now are you allowed to do that? And that was sort of the, as far as things went in 1992. And now I'm, I sit in rooms and say, I, I'm, I'm here to help people actually have a public life on the internet that isn't mediated just by commercial uh, interests. So I think we've, we've swung the pendulum too far. Um, fortunately, there is, there is a role, and the growing nature of things like Wikipedia or the Internet Archive or Linux or EFF, public knowledge, public library of science, we're now starting to get these nonprofit organizations that are really the infrastructure organizations. We're able to build operating systems and um, the number five most popular website is, is Wikipedia. That's pretty darn impressive that it's all nonprofit. Um, I have a lot of faith in this sort of secular nonprofit structures that we're building up uh, around technology. I guess what I was getting at in terms of the architecture um, being spoiled are the massive walled gardens that we have on the Internet, such as Facebook um, and uh, the iTunes store. How does Archive.org get at these walled gardens? Uh, let's just build an alternative that's much more fun and interesting. The last, when we had the AOL versus the World Wide Web, um, that was also sort of walled garden versus Wild West. And frankly, just being out in the Wild West was more fun. Um, it was just more interesting. That was where the happening stuff was was going on. It wasn't uh, contained and controlled. Um, but there, we have to keep the open environment so that it doesn't feel like it's just spam filled. I don't know. Email is starting to just feel like it's just a drag, um, and that's why people are retreating to towards systems that are kind of moderated and controlled by single corporations. And that's all around scary. Um, it, also, we're starting to see things like the cell phone world and Apple starting to really give up on the general purpose platform. It all has to come from them. Um, that's not going to come up with the next generation of really great applications if it has to be okayed by the incumbents. So having a bit of a wild and woolly world, um, keeping it fun and interesting, um, is something that we see at the Internet Archive as absolutely critical to not only you know the survival of our own organization, but sort of what it is we're here to, to help foster. So we, we help support things like the EFF and Wikipedia and we use Ubuntu, and um, I'm, I do use Apple products, but 
they're really kind of going a little closed. What do you think about the rumors going around that Apple is ultimately going to eliminate browsers um, from their platform? Browsers are, are starting to get just embedded and blended in with their in their worlds. I, I haven't heard that particular um, uh, rumor. I, I think we've just got to keep focusing on the open world. I we can't just slam the door such that the the next guy just can't come along and, and make something better than we did. I the idea of going and saying, well, you know, all right, we we have all the apps we need, we're, we're done. Um, it's just not the way we should make things go. It's not the way to have an intellectual history that grows and changes and is full of the uh, new ideas that are needed. That uh, Clearly, the generation that's in charge right now is uh, not doing that great a job. So let's, let's make sure that there's some openings towards doing something a little differently and hopefully a whole lot better. We're talking to Brewster Kale, founder of the Internet Archive. And if you have questions you'd like to ask him, our phone number is 201 209 9368, or you can leave a question or comment in text form on the WFMU homepage at WFMU.org and go to playlist and comments. Brewster, you're on the steering committee for the new Digital Public Library of America project. Can you tell us what that's all about? Yes, there's um, uh, there's a group of libraries that were working with Google to digitize a lot of, of books, um, and there was a sort of counter project, which was one that I, I helped run um, towards making openness. Uh, that The Google uh, libraries got tangled up in, in courts and then got stopped in the courts. And there's sort of this question of, okay, what do we do now uh, among them? And uh, some of them got together and started the Digital Public Library of America. And I, they're trying to learn from some of the lessons of the Google uh, project. Uh, and we'll see sort of what, what happens uh, out of that. Uh, particular project, but I think there's there's uh, a lot of countries are are doing things that are are definitely in the open domain, uh, which I'm very very excited about. Uh, actually, China for one is digitizing a lot of books uh, within the Department of Education, making things available all within legal constraints um, to uh, make things open and available. There are about 500 um, members of the Open Content Alliance. Um, that are trying to build open libraries that don't have centralized points of control. So I think it's too early to tell what's going to happen on the Digital Public Library of America, but I think there's um, good things happening in the books realm around lending, um, digital lending of scanned materials. So books that are, are digitized from the 20th century that aren't the, the current bestsellers uh, are being lent using the same constriction technologies that the publishers use for their in-print books, but these are uh, then uh, lent and borrowed for two weeks, and then it uh, comes back. So there's only one person at a time that can have these uh, old dusty musties, but it is bringing access now to hundreds of thousands of books um, out there on the net. So there are ways of working with the uh, within the sort of library metaphor, if you will, to do format shifting of some of the older materials into the newer uh, technology so you can read them on your iPads or iPhones. So if you go to openlibrary.org, which is a website that we built and run, um, there's 10,000 books for, for everybody. And then in a lot of libraries, like Boston Public Library and a lot of other libraries, if you go in, there's 200,000 books that are available. So I'd recommend sort of seeing how that's evolving as a mechanism of trying to deal with balancing the interest between commerce and access to information. We have a question from listener Boss in the Netherlands. He wants to know, um, is there a way that you place value on uh, what goes into the Internet Archive? Is, is a value judgment made, or you do, do you just try to get everything across the board? Um, we really try to get everything across the board, but we do have to go and sort of point our machines in gen different directions. So we, we've been trying towards the popular um, or the ephemeral. So we started with the World Wide Web because it was the most transient. Uh, and then we started archiving television um, and 20 channels of television D at DVD quality, Russian, Chinese, Japanese, Iraqi, Al Jazeera, BBC, CNN, NBC, Fox. But, you know, 20 channels wasn't everything. We've now upped it to around 100 channels. So are you, but, you are archiving 100 channels of worldwide TV 24 hours a day? Yes. 
Um, we can't make it terribly available yet, and we're trying to figure out how to get it more available. We did September 11th through September 17th, um, and that's up on the archive.org, archive.org slash 911. It's a little hard to watch, but it's interesting to see what you know. How did the Palestinians react? How did the Russians react? There was this theory that the um, uh, there was some American TV stations saying that the Palestinians were dancing in the streets. Well, were they? Well, you turn to Palestinian television. It turns out you have a very different point of view. So I think we now understand that news comes with a point of view. Um, and it's now been really brought brought home in the United States. Um, but, of course, those that watched really closely, of course, knew this forever. But I think it's now widespreadly accepted. So if we're going to think critically about this major cultural thing, which is television, um, then we're going to want to uh, be able to quote it. Uh, and compare and contrast. And that's very difficult to do. So that's what we learned in high school on how to write a good essay. But you can't really do that. You can do that with the newspaper, but you can't do that with television. So we'd like to try to get that um, to happen. I guess uh, speaking of the ephemeral nature of the Internet, um, I guess the elephant in the room might be pornography, which is, I guess, a great driver of uh, commerce and technology online. And there's a huge amount of uh, pornography pornography sites that come and go. Do you make any attempt to grab any of those? Yes, but we only get the free stuff. Um, so we haven't gone and, and uh, <laughs> gone and subscribed and then gone and uh, archived the, the other sections. Um, pornography is, is what a fan, <laughs> what an interesting role it plays in our, in, in society, but it's often been sort of under the table. Uh, I talked with a, uh, one of the leaders, uh, former leaders of the Library of Congress, he said, you know, the stuff just gets stolen. Um, you know, it gets submitted because it's got copyright, you know, deposit requirements in the Library of Congress, but it just it goes away. Uh, <laughs> Macromedia um, required that people send in um, a couple copies of the DVD, uh, CDs that use their software. This was accumulated, this is during the 1980s and 90s. Um, it would accumulate, but the pornography would just get kind of stolen. So you're saying um, that the copies of Hustler and Swank in the Library of Congress are walking? Well, I, I can't say it, but at least some of it. Some of it. it it's, it's sort of just kind of interesting. Uh, anyway, so we're, we're doing what we can on the uh, sort of on the publicly available uh, materials, but we haven't done a concerted real effort uh, in that particular genre. Uh, there are other areas that we have taken uh, real efforts, like we're, the work of Rick Prelinger uh, to archive ephemeral films, old educational films, um, doc, uh, ed- uh, advertisements, industrial films, those sorts of things. And he's now moved to... Uh, we, we've worked with him and we've digitized a lot of those films, put them up on archive.org and they're fantastically popular they're downloaded hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of times for the most popular of these things and I'm not really quite sure why maybe people, it's kitsch, maybe they're remaking things into their own movies all sorts of reasons Um, but he's now moving into into home movies so uh, the idea of taking all of these old films that are a raw documentation of life at, at a different time um, is actually interesting to people that it's not just your family. Um, so I think there's uh, areas of ephemeral uh, materials that we're pretty good at. Um, now, what are, some are, of the, what are some of the legal concepts that allow the Prelinger archives to be freely available? I know that, for one thing, if, if the government produced uh, a film, then that is freely available as public domain. But are there other such concepts like that? Oh boy, copyright stuff is just endlessly complicated and really contorted. Um, not the best person to, to ask. Um, there's certainly areas that sort of are are made available, and it's not a problem. Um, so things that are before 1923, you had to register copyrights between 1923 and 1964, and then re-register it 28 years later. It's sort of a whole incantation. But even you know. You have to take things to appeal courts to be able to figure out if some things are are copyrighted or not. So there's there's an evolution of this of just sort of well what what are the really the protected areas um, that we want to make sure <laughs> stay clear of commerce. Um, 
And then there's other things that are sort of moving forward. You think of YouTube, and there's all sorts of stuff on YouTube. And um, there's just more and more deals going on to try to figure out what are the right lines for this Internet age. We, we don't want to interfere with, uh, with, with those that are, are, are really um, concerned about particular things. So, for instance, on the Wayback Machine, we archive people's websites. But a lot of these websites weren't really designed for forever. And so people either put a robot exclusion on their website, which we then respect retroactively, or they write to archive.org, info at archive.org, and uh, we'll take things out of the Wayback Machine. And that type of, of respectful, uh, quick um, dealing with the issues uh, seems to be working out quite well. What, what are the reasons that most people would prefer their their older pages to be taken off of the Wayback Machine? Uh, often they're embarrassed by what things might have been on there. Um, time to move on. Um, I think is some of what we hear anecdotally. Uh, things that they just didn't really intend to last the ages. Uh, well, if people go to the Internet Archive, archive.org, and they type in their, their old college webpage uh, that they you know built up their blog or whatever, often there's sort of this, Wow! Ooh, <laughs> sort of. That's really cool. It's there, or it's not there. And then there's, wow. Am I better off or worse off because it's there? And we hope people, most people, feel that they're better off because it's there, um, because it has some level of of relevance to the future. Um, but other people come up and say, yeah, nah, let's see. And so we we take those things off of the wayback machine. So since I have you on the line now, can you remove all WFMU pages from prior to 2002? Uh, we don't know how to do a time-based uh, thing, so I think your embarrassing old web pages are just going to have to stay up there. Okay. Again. Now, you mentioned the uh, Google digitizing project that ran into legal problems. Were, were they, were, I, I'm not sure what you're referring to. Were those the orphaned works issues where Google was trying to just go out there and digitize every orphaned work that they could find? They've digitized about, uh, they've said, 12 million books in these great libraries, working with these libraries. Um, and the public domain books have got, they've put contractual restrictions. Um, so you can't, you can download them onesie-twosie, but you can't download a bunch. If you wanted a thousand books uh, of Hungari in Hungarian because you wanted to do some research project, they'd turn you off. So there's, um, and this is also enforced by the libraries that they're working with. So this is a, uh, so that's what they've done to the public domain, which we think is, is really atrocious. I mean, the public domain is small enough as it is. It should be fully available and completely. So when the Internet Archive digitizes things with about its 500 partners, we digitize about a thousand books every day and when if they're public domain then they go out to everybody with no restrictions at all you can download all of them we've digitized there are now over two million books on archive.org and people uh, about 10 million books a month are downloaded so anyway so the public domain should just be everywhere um and so they decided to do something differently um then there's the question of what do you do with the things that have rights issues that are rights burdened and uh so there was uh, this approach towards building a centralized um, organization called the Books Rights Registry and the and the Hati Trust that would be the ones that that sort of own and control these these books. There might be other Hati Trusts allowed by the Books Rights Registry, but it would all be centrally administered. And that's just not an American way to go. Going and giving uh, an organization that much power over the history of literature just isn't really kind of how things work here. And so there, it was objected to, and and the court said, eh, "Nah, you got to do something differently than that." So we're, we're really organized towards having many winners. We want to have many publishers, many libraries, many authors which make who make money, uh, and everyone a reader. So the idea of having lots of winners and no central points of control is how we got here on the Internet. Uh, it's the, why Creative Commons is kind of an interesting uh, approach, why open source has been working well, uh, the World Wide Web it doesn't have central points of control, uh, this is just the way to make a, a robust, evolving environment. Um, so we're resistant to any uh, on any of these approaches. So did Creative Commons play a really big role in the evolution of, of the Internet Archive, or was it was it simply an idea that Dude. It was huge. Um, when we were first talking with with people after we uh, just 
we we did the World Wide Web and and, um, and moving that along. But people wanted to go and put things up on the Internet Archive, um, and so they said, "Well, let's you know send me a contract," and it would just be this bogged down legal gubbish, and we couldn't get more through more than two or three of these a year. It was awful. Um, and but when the Creative Commons license came out, it, we just said, "Look." There's Creative Commons license. Pick one. If you pick one, we'll put it up, and we have, within our public funding, within our foundation nonprofit funding, we know that we can support it. And it sped things up. Now we deal with hundreds of organizations, and it works great. So that uh, structure for mechanisms of just sort of reeling back, it's trying to basically come before 1976 Copyright Act in the United States, which was really the just one of the worst ideas coming out of the United States in the 20th century, uh, where they made everything copyrighted and almost forever. Um, before that, you actually had to go put a C on things and send a copy into the Library of Congress to get protection. But they flipped that around. And Creative Commons is trying to bring us back to the, look, there's some things that we want to go and protect and sell and whatever, but mostly, you know, let's just have it out there. One of the things I really love about the Internet Archive and what I really admire about what you're doing is the way that you've jumped over all the digital rights and copyright issues that still seem to snag and ruin almost every other conversation about archives and librarians. When did you figure out that copyright is the wrong framework for talking about these things? Uh, copyright is just part of the arsenal that people have to try to stop things they don't like. The, the key thing I, I learned by doing the Wayback Machine was people are, when, when people see this stuff up there, they're trying to figure out, are they being taken advantage of? If they feel like they're being taken advantage of, they'll figure out some way to cause you trouble. Copyright is just one arrow in that quiver. There's all sorts of different things you can do to try to tangle up an organization or, or somebody else that you think is, is doing you wrong. So the key thing is to try to stay such that you don't piss people off. And so it's being respectful, um, I guess, is probably the biggest. And one of the wonders is actually out of the music world. Um, there was a tradition that was started by the Grateful Dead, um, which was allowed their fans to tape their concerts and trade the uh, their their concert recordings. And this has gone on years and years before, and I had my cassettes back in the 70s um, uh, from Grateful Dead concerts. And you sort of knew who, who the top deadheads were by how big their collection was and how few generations they were from the master copies, whatever. Um, and we had an intern working for the Internet Archive that was... Uh, in 2002, and he said, you know, tape trading still exists, and it's just moved on to the internet. I said, no. He said, yeah, yeah, and there are lots of other bands that do it. And so I said, okay, well, why don't you offer them unlimited storage and unlimited bandwidth forever for free? <laughs> so we went and we wrote, uh, he, he wrote to this, uh, the eTree community, which was sort of the uh, group that sort of administered tape traders, and said, you know, we'd be up for hosting these materials, unlimited storage, unlimited bandwidth for free. And uh, the, somebody from that community wrote back and said, we don't believe you. <laughs> it's too big. And, but if you could do it, it would be our dream, which is a really good sign. So we said, okay, well, well let's try it. Um, and we didn't uh, – it was a little different to, from tape trading to go and hosting on a website. So let's get somebody within the band or the, some, somebody within that community to say it's okay. And so it wasn't in sign and triplicate, which is what your lawyers would all say to do. It was somebody within the band or somebody saying, it's okay to host this stuff on the archive.org. And if um, anytime you want to take it back down again, you can, you know, we'll take it back down again. And so we started getting three bands a day kind of signing up with this uh, and about 40 concert recordings being uploaded to archive.org and it's been going on now for 10 years we just crossed over a hundred thousand concert recordings and five thousand bands have signed up and these are fantastic it's everywhere from sort of you know bands that are playing in real venues but you know some of them are signed uh artists and some of them aren't and it's working so you, you take that whole period of time when um, there were all these lawsuits going and suing grandmothers and kids, and they, it was dreadful. 
And we were finding that there is a path through this. There are ways to make it so that everybody's happy. The library, we're happy with it. The fans are happy with it. The bands are happy with it. It seems to be all around working. And I think we just need to sort of kind of walk through some of these doors, maybe a little slowly, saying what we're trying to do, what we're trying to do, how we're trying to do it. Um, we're not making a lot of money off of this stuff. In fact, we're making no money off of this stuff. And that was key to the Grateful Dead. Um, and that seems to help um, get through things that might just be tangled up for years if we didn't do it that way. Now, I have a vague memory of uh, at a certain point, the Grateful Dead actually um, took a mild amount of issue with all the tapes that were on archive.org. And wasn't a compromise worked out? Yes. That Oh, gosh. That... That was a tough. That was a tough uh, couple of weeks. <laughs> uh, we got a con- contacted by um, the, one of the Grateful Dead archivists who knew that we were doing this, um, but they'd been. Uh, there was some internal talk within the band community, and they said, "Bruce, you're you're going to have to take it down." <laughs> and it was great. There was no legal thing. There was no sort of cease and desist. It was just, you know, all that sort of, you know, how you'd imagine the Grateful Dead would do things. Um, and they said, you're going to have to take this down. And I said, I'll, I'll take it down, but um, <laughs> it's going to cause a storm. Um, and they said, no, sorry, you're still going to have to take it down. So there's two classes of, of materials in the Grateful Dead collection. There's audience recordings, which were really what was supposed to be traded, and there were soundboard recordings, which sort of leaked out of uh-huh. the uh, out of the vaults, um, but they were collected up, and then we put them all back up on the Internet Archive. Um, so we have, well, everything the Grateful Dead has ever done. And so these were out there, and so we then took them down, and the world exploded. It was on, uh, it was in the uh, New York Times was on CNN twice, and then there was this just very public dialogue back and forth um, about what should happen uh, to all of this, and it, there was a compromise that that was reached, and I think that you, know, you may disagree with it, but what happened was the audience recordings are all publicly downloadable, so you can go and download those and trade those as long as nobody makes any money, and the soundboards are streamable. And once that compromise was reached, sort of the whole thing died back down again. And frankly, I think we're on firmer footing because the grandfathers of the sharing world uh, sort of weighed in and, and had a public debate as to sort of where do you draw the lines on these sorts of uh, cultural artifacts that weren't being exploited commercially. Oh, uh, we would get um, contact, and they said, "Hey, we're going to come out with another Dick's Picks, which is another concert that we're going to start selling." And then we'd pull it down from the Internet Archive. Again, we don't want to interrupt uh, commerce. We just want universal access to all knowledge. Some of it'll be for pay, some of it'll be for free, but at least let's make sure that it's up and preserved and available. Now we have a. A question from listener Curtis. He would like to know whether there are facilities for archi- archiving data for public access via archive.org. I'm sorry, can you please repeat? His question is, are there facilities for archiving data for public access via archive.org? I guess uh, does does archive... Hit, hit the button upload in the upper... Um... Uh, upper right of the site, and you can upload any file. If we if it gets super popular, usually it, it means that we, then we kind of go and look at it, and sometimes it's things that we don't think we should be having on the Internet Archive, or sometimes people go and flag things and say, eh, that's kind of inappropriate. But yeah, it's basically free hosting of books, music, video. Uh, you can put data. Um, please don't put crypto data or you know things like that. It's not meant to be sort of a backup of your hard drive. Um, but things that you think of would belong in a li- in a library uh, we want all cultural uh, artifacts um, so please do upload oh we've got a beta version of some, of a different version if you go to archive.org slash upload I think it's a better interface it hasn't really been publicly available yet but but check it out now I guess um, by allowing anybody to go on to archive.org and uploading whatever they want you come in under the safety of uh, of the safe har- harbor provision is that accurate yeah, there's the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which in general is a piece of dreadful legislation, but they did make it so that uh, there's sort of a notice and takedown provision, that if users go and put things up on, on these websites, uh, then the websites are not 
responsible unless they're contacted by rights holders and say take it down. Uh, and that's really made the internet and user um, uh, user generated content possible. There is also the Communications Decency Act, uh, Section 230, that uh, is is out. Uh, that really helped, and that's why we have the internet that basically we've come come to enjoy uh, today. There's an attack on that actually um, by the Washington State Legislature. Um, they wanted to basically make it so for certain types of content, it had to be advertising sex. Turned out to be the uh, the thing that they used in this circumstance. But we've seen other things, whether it's you know. You know kitty porn or terrorists, whatever. Um, but anyway, so this, this time around, they're using that as the, um, uh, uh, the area to make it so that websites would be criminally responsible for what their users put up on their websites. And uh, so the EFF and the Internet Archive have uh, sued to try to get that, that law blocked. Mm-hmm. Currently, it's the, uh, the judge basically said the law could not go into effect yet. Until the uh, until there's more hearings, so we're encouraged. Now, what have you learned from uh, from overseeing the Internet Archive that you're going to bring to the Digital Public Library of America? Um, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen with the Digital Public Library of America, but but if we take the gen- more general um, uh, role of trying to build kind of the library of everything, um, I think we need to 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 flex and, and be respectful, we need to really work to get some of these other communities online, like art videos. Art videos are really, they've never been very available. You know, you'd see them in, in uh, these these fun and interesting uh, movie theaters once, and then they'd sort of go back away. So how do we go and get that stuff online? How do we get uh, uh, music so it's, it's better represented, so it's not all just going through a couple of, of single gatekeepers, um, even with their sort of as big and strong and, and capable as, as iTunes and Spotify, I don't think that that's really where um, a lot of the future of music is going to come from. Um, books, uh, journals, I think the open, uh, the open journals are really doing very well. Public Library of Science is showing that you can get tenure by publishing in open access journals, and that's um, really changing how academia works to get it back to where it used to be, which colleges were more or less copyright-free zones. And that, um, I think, can be restored um, by these open access movements. So I'm encouraged by um, many of these movements that are going on from much smaller organizations than sort of the big, um, either the big libraries, uh, big publishers. Um, we're seeing a lot of creativity come from below. And we have a caller. Uh, Chris is on the line. Hi, Chris. You're on the air with Brewster Kale of the Internet Archive. Go ahead. Yeah, I can. Uh, Brewster, thank you very much for what you've done over the years. Without you, I would not be listening to my CBS radio mystery theaters or uh, Bob and Ray or Gene Shepard. Uh, but there's another thing. Um, I was checking out your FAQ, and it says that normally if you wanted to upload something, you'd have to have some sort of like license or copyright or some sort of ownership of it. Um, with the upload itself, uh, now say a few months ago, they, they nuked Mega Upload. And yeah. uh, I used to use that as a source for sharing Bob, uh, Bob Lasseter files with people. And that, that's no, no longer currently available. Um, would I be able to take like open source MP3s of Bob Lasseter and upload them to uh, the archive? As long as you don't think that we'll get in trouble for it, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know who Bob Lasseter is. So, I, I, if if it's owned by somebody that is is, um, then 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 don't get us in trouble if you can. Um, yeah, my experience, Chris, has been that um, most uh, talk show hosts are happy to have their stuff distributed in that way. So, if you just find somebody. Uh, Bob La- Bob Lasser, somebody from his family that just says it's okay, then I would just go ahead and do it. Okay. Okay, thanks, Ken. Thank uh, you, Chris. People, uh, it is uh, it is an evolving standard as to exactly how screwed down should all of this be. Certainly if you can get somebody, even if they're not going to say in triplicate, again, you know, it's okay. But if there's somebody from within different communities um, 
whether, as you said, Bob Lasseter's family uh, or the like. You know, and this is the sort of way we deal with, uh, with, with rock and roll bands. If it's not something you've made, then they're, try to make sure that it's, it's not going to be offensive to, to, uh, to those that might take offense. Now, you mentioned Spotify before. There's been quite a debate raging about Spotify um, since it pays probably the smallest amount of royalties of any legal music streaming service. And Spotify's argument is that it's better than piracy. Um, how do you weigh in on that kind of thing? Um, wow, I, I just recently went and uh, tried out Spotify. I, I sort of did the, okay, does it have the obscure stuff? And it seemed to have everything that I could think of. It was it was pretty darn impressive. Um, so my my hat is off to them in, in that way. Um, is that the one way? Whoops! I think we lost you. Can you can you repeat that? We just broke up a little bit. Sorry. I uh, they seem to have just a tremendously deep collection, which I'm really uh, quite happy that that's at least as accessible as what they're doing. Um, but what should happen? I, I I don't really know. I think that we should have music libraries, real you know libraries within the library traditions that also have collections that are as deep and as broad as Spotify. What are some of the challenges facing the future of the Internet Archive as well as the DPLA? What are the things that might bring you down in the future? What will bring the Internet Archive down? I think it'll be this a growing irrelevance um, to the sort of deep materials that the Internet Archive really focuses on. That, I think, is the either that or um, a stroke of a pen. I think the, uh, the way that, well, libraries are burned by governments and the way that they burn them now is with a stroke of a pen. Um, so, and we're seeing whole websites um, whole organizations get taken down with one swath based on um, potentially a minority of the files that are on them. So SOPA and PIPA, um, which were those uh, failed pieces of legislation, had that kind of, let's strike down whole websites at a time, not just individual pieces of materials. And that I find frightening. Um, so unless we do really strong things to go and protect the open internet, it will disappear. Um, it wasn't around <laughs> when I was growing up. You know, you'd, you'd be able to get distribution. You had to fight your way through uh, retail chains and all sorts of, of awful things. So we've built up something that's been amazingly open, um, but it's going to require absolute defense. I would support, and I, I'm a board member of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I think they're doing one of the best jobs in some of this. And be active and you know, go out and protest when it actually comes time to do it. Were you impressed with uh, the outcry over SOPA and PIPA when that took place? I was so pleased that really Jimmy Wales going and going and uh, leading the charge to darken Wikipedia, I think was one of the, the big biggest issues. Uh, so I think there are uh, ways that we can um, we can win this one. I just the, the the corporate influence on the legislature at this point. I think we're just going to get bad laws after bad laws. So I think we have enough laws that we need now that we don't need new laws uh, in many of these circumstances because the laws as they come out are just worse each time for the and at least from the public's point of view. It might you know benefit some corporation or they might think it might, um, but it it often doesn't. Uh, doesn't play into the public interest. So I think we've got the 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 rule the the laws we need. We've got the civic responsibility to build libraries that are robust uh, and serve the public good. Um, we just like more of them. We'd like one of these in every country. Well, that's a great way to end it. And thank you so much for talking to us this last hour. It really flew by, Brewster. Thank you very much, Ken. And uh, I will talk to you uh, on email. I'd like to chat with you off the air, but our technology, alas, is, is not up to that. But thanks so much for talking to us on this, uh, the maiden voyage of Radio Free Culture here on WFMU. We've been chatting with Brewster Kale, founder and digital librarian of the Internet Archive here on a new program on WFMU known as Radio Free Culture, a monthly series that will take place right here the last Monday of the month in the Monday 6 to 7 p.m. Too Much Information slot focusing on digital culture, piracy, digital rights management, archives, 
libraries, net neutrality, uh, and uh, similar issues. And uh, we're going to go out with uh, Yacht from the Free Music Archive. This is called Shangri-La. And this is WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WFMU.org. Thanks to Benjamin Walker for making this program happen tonight. And stay tuned next for Nardwar. <laughs>